Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico is brought to you by Light Street Media. This podcast is supported by Joe's Albums. You know how much I love vinyl and go in the record stores. Well, my favorite stop these days is Joe's Albums. Joe has two fantastic locations. The original store at 317 Main Street in Worcester, Massachusetts, and their newest stop out in the hipster college town of Northampton at 5 Market Street. Both stores have a great new releases section and a huge assortment of used records. You want to check out some cool record stores? Check out Joe's Albums in Worcester and Northampton, Massachusetts. And if you really want to geek out, go to joesalbums.com. We're also supported by Baby Loves Tacos, the fantastic Mexican-style cuisine joint located at 4508 Liberty Avenue in the Bloomfield section of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Check out the Baby Loves Tacos website at babylovestacospgh.com. Baby Loves Tacos, where everybody eats. I am really excited to talk to you about my new sponsor, Studio Float. There are so many of us creatives and podcasters who need a quiet home studio. Or maybe you're in a band that needs a soundproof rehearsal space so you can create whenever the mood strikes. For most of us creatives, noise control is a big issue. Studio Float is the simple solution. Studio Flow makes inexpensive, high-performance, patented sound isolating products called IsoRafts for use in new or retrofit applications. Studio Float IsoRafts completely isolate floors, walls, ceilings, creating a truly floating shell within a shell while preventing sound transfer to and from one space to an adjacent space. Visit studio-float.com for details and assistance with designing your project. Use the code BLOWINGSMOKE10 in the online order form and you'll get 10% off your order. Studio Float, life is loud, float above the noise. That's studio-float.com. Let's take a trip. 
to know each other Just to be alone Just to be alone Just to be alone Welcome to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. We have a very special show for you today. Dana Cauley joined us for a great talk. Dana, of course, the incredible saxophone player of Morphine and more recently Vapors of Morphine and some other great bands like AKA COD. In fact, the track you just heard was Let's Take a Trip with Dana also singing on that one. That's a rarity from the album entitled The Ever-Expanding Elastic Waistband, (laughs) Members of Morphine with Jeremy Lyons, described by the band as this was the debut album of Vapors of Morphine, except it wasn't. It's a little rarity for you there. (laughs) When the band played their first gig, they had not even agreed on a name for themselves. Alternatively, billing shows as Lions, Collie, Dupree, members of Morphine, the Elastic Waistband, and finally, the ever expanding elastic waistband. I sure hope I got all that right. The Dupree, of course, is Jerome Dupree, who was the original drummer of Morphine before the late Billy Conway took over after the second record. Uh, Dana is someone that has been on the top of my list to get on this show, and it was a pleasure to finally make it all work. His work in Morphine, along with Mark Sandman, Jeremy Dupree, and Billy Conway, made us all look at music, be it rock or alternative, in a different way. I'll never forget the first time I saw Morphine live. They were about as unique as it gets, and one of the most interesting bands ever to emerge from the U.S. music scene, and became even more popular 
popular in other countries around the world, including Italy, where singer-bassist Mark Sandman died on stage on July 3rd, 1999, at the age of 46. It shocked us all when it happened. I didn't know Sandman well, but I'll never forget the one hour we sat next to each other one afternoon at the Druid in Inman Square in Cambridge, talking and drinking beer side by side. Um, it was sad losing such a great talent for the fans, but we can only imagine what his close friends and family went through after that. It was just a shocking death. All right, Dana and I spoke for a good hour and we covered a lot. There was one point that he started telling me the story about how he and Jeremy Lyons sort of met in New Orleans, but we never heard the end of that story. But he did send me a text message and reminded me that they each had a copy of a Polaroid that he had taken of Jeremy playing before they actually knew each other. And they each had a copy of that Polaroid and they had saved it. Destiny brought them together and Vapors of Morphine was born and still is very much active today. All right, so here I am talking with the great Dana Cauley. Hear that? Did you say you weren't going to get any more handsome when I hit I, the record button? You did, though. <laughs> How you doing, man? You might want to clean your glasses there. Well, they looked... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what you're seeing through it's them. a re oh i thought you really meant my glasses were dirty um so um i want to ask you about your upbringing I, I, you were born in portland maine and then you that, moved to mass that is correct yes portland maine yeah my parents are from portland uh both uh sides of the family uh, my dad went to daring high school my mom went to portland high and they uh ed and donna collie donna petisano was her maiden name she lived up on Munjoy Hill. Um, I can remember being a kid in my grandmother's house and the smell of Nissen bread was always present in the air because the factory, the Nissen factory was right behind the, her house. How, Not how, bad. How old Not were a, you yeah. when you moved down to uh, Massachusetts? I was pretty young, uh, but we went back frequently. I, I think I was like one year old when we moved to... I want to say, I think my, I want to say Brockton or Whitman or something like that. My dad was going to university at Boston University, getting his master's in art. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so he, art education, he went on to teach and has since retired and is now both my parents live in Ipswich. That's nice. Nice yeah. area. Um, yeah. did, did you come from a family that listened to a lot of music when you were young? My my dad has always loved music, and they actually met. My parents met at at a dance, which was pretty common in that era to as as a social event. So my both my parents were um, loved music, and my mom and dad both loved dancing. And they met at a dance, I guess. And uh, my dad tells the story of seeing this beautiful long black hair of my mother, and then immediately falling in love. And he's been in love ever since. So. She, she tolerates my dad, but, she, you know, I think she loves him, too. Did, did they play a lot of music around the house? Yeah, they, my dad had all kinds of records, uh, you know, Count Basie, Benny Goodman, um, you know, um, they, a lot of big band stuff, Glenn Miller. And they would dance in the living room, uh, the, the Jitterbug 
my dad would take my mom and throw her, throw her over his his hip and through the legs and you know breaking the lamps in the ceiling and everything you know they were <laughs> they, yeah, they they could cut a rug and still do to this day uh so that music was always in the house and it, but beyond that my dad always had a love for blues and and for jazz and for you know smaller bands smaller spin-off bands that came out of the big band era so there was tons of records if uh, and i have them in my house right now actually i i, I saved them were uh, you like listening to jazz when you were young and that did that catch your ear right away oh yeah well i started playing the clarinet um in the fourth grade so immediately my father started playing Benny Goodman for me and said, this is the, this is the guy you should listen to. And then Woody Herman and all of that stuff. But I never, of course, yeah, I never was able to, you know, simulate that particular style of music, but it, it certainly something that I absorbed. Did you play the clarinet for a long time before you started playing sax? Uh, well, the thing was from fourth grade to seventh grade, I uh, heard the saxophone being performed uh, by the high school jazz band, and they were playing uh, the Pink Panther. And the solo in the Pink Panther um, was a tenor solo. And I, it something just clicked in my head. It was like, wow, that's the coolest thing. Amazing sound. And how do I learn? How do I do that? I, I was always sort of possessed by the the, the quest to to acquire that feeling you have when you hear music, you know, and to actually have it, have it come through you, which is uh, a very early memory. So I think that was what's, what was happening there. And I said, okay, the saxophone and it, this going from clarinet to saxophone is pretty simple transition. You know, it's the same fingering. It's in fact, a lot easier to play than the clarinet. So it, it's, it's a lot more fun in that way. And it's, it's much closer to something you can, you can just rock with too, which helps. <laughs> not to say there aren't rocking clarinetists, I, but I, I certainly was not going to be one of them. Uh, I'm not just going to say for my listeners, but for me also. Can you like just give a brief brief description of the difference between a baritone sax and a tenor sax? Okay, well, they're similar to any kind of musical family. Each. Each um, range of instrument is is denotated by a name, and you have the, the bass, of course. We all know what that is. Mm -hmm. And at the very top, you have something like soprano, and in the very top, like a soprino or sup, something something Italian, but even higher than soprano, uh, sopratino, something like that. So in between, you, ha you have, uh, between that and the highest range, you have bass, baritone, tenor, alto, soprano that's true in vocals that's true in in any group of instruments that have uh you know multiple ranges made i think that'll explain it yeah. <laughs> of course i i didn't know that and i've been in the music business my whole life but uh did you when you were listening to jazz did you did you go off into other areas and listen to blues and rock and things i mean what were you what got what caught your ear your own ear after you listened to all the things your your father played uh it's well growing up in the 70s guitar rock, rock was pretty predominant especially when we had then eventually moved down to the south shore uh to hanson massachusetts most of the friends that I had in Hanson and uh, were all very, had many of them were very musical. 
And uh, I listened to a lot of stuff that my friends, older brothers were listening to. So that kind of opened up my my head that there was something else beyond, you know. Well, it, it always looked like looking back, you know, it, all of this stuff looked like history. You know, you go into a jazz catalog and it's a wow, that happened then. And, and you're a kid and you think, wow, that seems like a long time ago. Looking at a big band era, you know, everything, the world seemed black and white, you know, like you see on TV. So by the 70s, you know, you get open to the, start opening up to, oh, I'm getting a little closer here. This happened in the, I can still almost feel this this thing that happened in it. Like Woodstock, for instance, you know, it just sort of, you could still feel it in the in the air. I remember it happening. I, I was pretty too, I was pretty young. I would have been way too young to go. But some of my friends, older brothers and sisters went and they came back with a lot of music of that time. And from there, it was just, you know, when's the next Beatles record going to drop or when's the next Stones record going to drop or it was very much part of like you know the culture is to you know anticipating the, the music of, of our some of the greatest of that era you know yeah you mentioned the Stones they effectively use saxophone in many of their songs well there you go it's like then you as a list as a saxophone player loving guitar rock you know you, you start to hope and pray that you can hear the saxophone in the music you love and uh, as inspiration, as kind of say motivation, as a keep going, kid. You know, you, there, you, there's room for you out here somewhere. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know about three colors. I want to ask you about them. But were you in any other bands before them? I was in a band in Brockton called Riding High, uh, which is a small local punk band, which was very informative uh, to me as a as a musical uh, stepping stone. I think the foundation, amazing musicians playing funk music. I was the only white guy in the band, and and I, they brought me into their world, and uh, it was a very wonderful thing to be a part of. Did you go to school in uh, in college in Boston? I went to college at Mass College of Art. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. Is that where you started meeting people, and that is that how the band Three Colors came together from being in school? Well, Three Colors came as a band up from Connecticut College in the 80s, and they moved, all moved up to Boston to kind of be part of what was going on up here. They had all known each other from there and had formed. It was Chris Hartford, Max Moore, Hub Moore, and, and um, Stan. Uh, oh man, I can't believe I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, it's been out of the picture for a long time, but we, we called him Stan. <laughs> Barry's Barry Stringfellow. Sorry, Stan. I spaced. Uh, it's been a long time. It's yeah, a, so anyway, yeah. So those guys just had a band together and they asked you to join. Did they, there was, was there a sax in the band at the time? or There, or there they... wasn't. There wasn't. And uh, they came to Boston. They were, they were doing perfectly well on their own until I insisted that they take me on as one of their members, essentially. <laughs> and they were kind enough to put me under their wing and say oh i basically badger them like when i when i first had an opportunity to play with them at a mass art party that chris invited me to play at chris went to mass art and that's kind of how we met and uh i i went out and just played this kind of james chance abstract thing and sat down and i was i was so jazzed by the idea of being in a band that i heckled them and and kept after them asking them when they were going to rehearse again you know 
And I kept calling up Hub and say, you guys rehearsing again? I'd love to come down. And I was like, no, dude, we don't have any gigs booked. So we're all kind of just laying low. We'll let, you know, check in in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks would roll by and I'd call them back like, okay, it's been two weeks exactly. Here we go. <laughs> and eventually they just, I kept doing that. And they just decided, they said, this kid will not stop. So let's go down and rehearse to get him off our back. I, I mentioned Paul earlier, Paul Coulter, and he told me that along with uh, Lifeboat, uh, Three Colors was one of the first bands that he recorded. Uh, what's your recollection of that period and how that all was going? Were you part oh, of that whole crew of guys that they had started, you know, the sex execs guys and all them? Well, those guys were a bit older, and I was I was sort of, like I said, I was just prying my way in, in a way. Um, just trying to just trying to have an opportunity to be in a band and do this crazy thing, you know. And uh, these were the guys that I met. Lifeboat shared the rehearsal space with Three Colors, so we got to know those guys really well, and we shared a lot of, you know, gear and and we did a lot of gigs together. And we're growing up together. We're young guys at the time, you know, in our twenties, so figuring a lot of shit out. And then so you had Paul who was an amazing bass player who we all would love to have, you know, grabbed him as a bass player, but he had bigger aspirations and much larger interest in the world of recording. And so he, uh, he, uh, kind of peeled into that realm. Um, and we we're fortunate enough to be able to, you know, be a part of this, the scene where there was this amazing amount of music, an amazing ability to capture and record it, you know. And so Paul and Sean had, I'm not sure, Sean and Jimmy Fitting had a house on Dorchester where they had it rigged, where they had the control room in the third floor and they had wires going down into the basement. And the bands played in the basement. And, you know, you'd holler down the stairs, so that was a good take, or do it again, <laughs> you know. And that's that was my first recording experience with Three Colors was at that house. Yeah, you guys were around for like a pretty good period. During that period in Boston, 85 to 88, there was a lot going on. The Boston music scene was really booming. Uh, what kind of venues do you remember playing with that band? Uh, we played Jumping Jack Flash. We played The Rat. We played um, Storyville. We played... Um, we played... Where else we play? Uh, we played in Connecticut a lot. But that was That's not prevalent to this conversation um what, is, what am i missing in terms of bars uh, i don't know if the middle east was around yet it might i don't either too I don't early think it was. i think it was well there, you know that whole scene the rat um i loved storyville bun, bun rat bun ratties yeah of course yeah you mentioned storyville that was a really good room i used to like going back and forth to the rat in storyville because i went to college here too and i used to go to see you could see like six seven bands a night if you just timed it right you know so Great. that's where i first saw our sex execs was in that room and that, that same room that charlie charlie parker apparently had, had played in so it was it was quite amazing to to be there what a great building right on that corner of uh beacon and is it uh brookline or bullshit calm, calm or oh yeah. maybe it is calm is it on that side or is i thought it was closer to the beacon street side i think it was like if you where the highway is in the beacon street and yeah you... i think there was a i don't know what's there now but i know it became a pizza hut after a while and it was directly right in that in the middle of that block yeah. i used to love love that what's place the, 
What's the street that comes over the highway leaving Fenway? What's that oh, one? Jesus. I think that is Beacon, actually. So that Beacon, you come into Beacon right into Kenmore Square on the left. Yeah. I think that building there on the left. And yeah. then it became like a rehearsal spaces up in there for a long time on the second floor. And I remember have someone having a beautiful space up there, sunshine and it's just, yeah, gorgeous. Did you, at this point, had you met Mark Sandman and Jerome Dupree? Uh, were they around the scene? I know Mark was in Treater Wright. I don't know what Jerome was doing before that. I guess he was, you... playing in, he was playing in um, uh, Sex Execs, for one. Jerome oh, was. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. There were a lot of guys in the Sex Execs. Yeah. It's hard to remember see well. him. Yeah, you couldn't <laughs> see him behind all the suits, but he was in there. Walter was pretty tall. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, did you read the, suits? So you had met those guys during that period. Uh, I was a fan of their band because they they were very talented and and you, they had a lot of things going on within the band. You know, I didn't really know Ted, but I did. I you know, Paul was a really good friend, and um, I was getting to know Jerome and Jim Fitting was was I was a big fan of him, always have been, um, and that kind of led me into Treat Her Right when I did that whole connection. Um. So I met Mark actually before that when he was playing um, in his solo project called Sandman, which was before Tree Her Right came together. Around that same time that uh, Sex Execs were, and everybody was playing The Rat and Tree Colors had done a gig and I think Mark was on after us or, and he uh, was, he just sat, he's like, wow, who's this guy? Immediately, you know, this is, this is kind of unique. He had this very deep, approach and that was much closer to like the blues vibe and in a blues vein than like new wave you know but still contemporary and interesting and uh so yeah he was uh someone that just immediately you like you you couldn't help but you know see this guy had something going on so did he ask you to play is that what happened we had met like a threat and then uh, became friends and i you know just exchanged numbers or something like that and then three colors went to europe to try to make its way into in london i should say and uh failed miserably and uh came back broken and disbanded uh, and then mark gave me a call and said hey you want to jam i had nothing going on i said i would of course i would love to and i went to his house uh, his apartment over on william street in cambridge Brought my baritone, which I just recently acquired. Um, and then um, he had his one string he'd been building and working <laughs> on. And sat down on his piano, which I actually have in my house, his, that same piano. And uh, he played his one string, and, and I played my baritone, and it was like Eureka. The sound just just kind of went like that, just just combined perfectly. And then when he started singing, it was a, like this other triad of the so there's like a triangle of sound that was you could just see the light bulb form over Mark's head. You know, for me it was like you know I'm still trying to figure this this thing out, but it sounds good to me. Uh, and so Sandman he then contacted Jerome and booked a a rehearsal at his Jerome's rehearsal space in Everett. We went over there. That's how I met Jerome officially, uh, and. Uh, we started rehearsing and working on songs and getting gigs and recording. It was all there, you know, 
all the all the opportunity of, of in terms of like oh get a song recorded you know just and just oh you've got five songs got it you know get a few more and you have yourself a cassette you know oh boy <laughs> you know I I know Paul worked with you on some of what ended up being the good album he mentioned that someone he dated worked at Ryko Disc and played yep. uh, played it in their office but he never mentioned the person's name who who was that that it was Carrie, oh, sorry, I think I made it distorted there. Carrie Swingden. And she played it for the people over at Ryko Disc, and did that deal go down quickly? Apparently it did, yeah. That's that's how it that's what I understand. Um I think at the time they were looking for live music that they had a lot of catalog. At that time they had acquired the Hannibal um Caroline um catalog. And we're reissuing a lot of that stuff on on CD and having some success with the new medium of CD. And I think they were looking for, you know, um, some live acts to kind of do the same with and maybe see what that was about. Did you guys get to go on the road right away after you did the good album? Yeah, we. I mean, we were on the road prior to that. We 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 uh we hit the road pretty soon. You know, we're just kind of gigging wherever we could. We went out to California and did a West Coast with Jerome, and and uh, that was before. I want to say before before we recorded. Cure really? For Pain. Yeah, and I think that was probably what made Cure for Pain, um, go as seamlessly and. And as it did in terms of a recording process, I think the drum was really on fire and had been, you know, we've been playing a lot. He left like what, towards the end of the recording of that record? Officially, he left at the end of that California tour. And, but I think, um, but Mark and Jerome uh, agreed to come in and, and at least record it, record his tracks before you know, departing. And then Billy Conway, rest in peace. Uh, he, he took over at that point and you guys seem to even, I'm not going to say get better because you were great with, with Jerome, but it, it, you didn't miss a beat is what I'm saying. I see what you did there. <laughs> the beat. That's good. It, it could have been unintentional, but yeah. I did it. I, I know. That's good. Well, we were very fortunate without question to to make that transition without missing a beat and and in large part because of the relationship that Jerome and Billy had and continued to have throughout our our career you know they were both about what was best for the music and you know neither one of them were you know that it was it was a handing off of a baton you know or a drumstick if you will did you guys ever think about changing it up and bringing a, a guitar player in at any point? Or was that never part of the, even a thought? Well, the thing is that on record, on records, we can, we can introduce anything we wanted, you know, we could bring in anybody to play on it. We could add whatever we wanted to it. If we wanted a guitar, we did. Um, and for a live setting, the, the it's so much easier to have a, be stripped down in terms of you know logistics so i think you know three guys plus tour manager plus sound engineer is about perfect you know and yeah. even another body is another is another boat is another you know another personality another 
someone's wife who's really upset with them because they're they're not at home you know or partner it doesn't have to be wife did uh, uh i know you you ended up with dreamworks and did, did, was that a part of a deal that Ryko disc had going or did you guys get a get directly signed to dreamworks uh you know how it all went down is was probably it was not really something i was a part of you know it was a kind of a deal that mark made with and that was kind of a you know a shit show in many ways so you know it's uh it didn't go down easily i think in terms of Ryko, uh, what they how they felt about it they had to leave their imprint on their record though at least the uh like swimming record uh yeah i think it was still light That's, swimming they right. still had their name was on there now at this point you guys were already like start you really got into the touring aspect of things i can't remember what year it was but when i was working for AM records you guys were uh had 16 horsepower uh with you and that's when i saw you guys a few times because i was out in california during this period and having those two bands together i was like holy shit this is like yeah. a whole new chapter for me you know I mean, that was really unique. Do you remember that tour? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Those guys were amazing. We toured with them quite a bit in Europe. And just uh, sends a chill down my spine just thinking about it right now because uh, the music that they made were just it was so haunting and eerie. And David's uh, songs and his where he his where he was at that time and his playing and the rest of the band were just uh, electric and yeah, spooky as hell. Were you surprised by the reaction that that tour was getting? Because I remember seeing some shows that were really good. I mean, both bands were on fire. I don't know. It's hard to gauge that when you're there. You know, it's like you know, what that reaction is. If we have a house of people who you know are there and ready to play and want to have want to hear music, um, then we that's what we we come away with that feeling like okay, that was a good one. You know, um, the next one. You know, it's hard to tell. We had a really good run. That's all I know, because it, it, we had a bunch of shows that were just over the top. And after at, after a certain point, they were all sold out. And we were able to do, you know, two nights in a row in places like San Francisco at the Fillmore. Which and you just you can't believe you're, you can't believe it's, it happened. You can't believe that you actually can put people in the room two nights in a row in this huge place. It just at that point, you're thinking this is, you know, this is crazy. It's, but it's it what it is what it was you know and uh it was what it was and uh i think you're so in it at the time that it's really kind of hard to fully fully calculate right. you know what the, the overall you know outside of your little your your perception you know did you guys open for a lot of bigger bands because i don't i don't remember no, if you did or not we had kind of a a rule that we would rather do our own gigs you know I didn't, yeah that's what i thought and uh just opening usually meant that you had to you know you played 30 minutes and even for bigger bands it, it, if we could fill our own houses that to the capacities that we felt were we were we were, could could be enjoyable as a musical event then that's that was fine and hey you know if we could do it two nights in a row it means we didn't have to we didn't have to travel for for one day then that's even better so is if we it, play smaller rooms for over two nights as opposed to playing, you know, in front of 
a big headliner that we could put you in front of a lot of people to choose the former. Well, um, I know you guys became really popular in other countries. Um, when, when did that start to happen? And do you recall what, what it was like when you first went to Europe and Australia and some of these other places? Well, the first place we went was, um, was France, a place called, uh, uh, it was called uh, Transmusical. It was a, a festival in, in Rennes, in Brittany, France. It was just the kind of festival that we got invited to. And Ben Harper was there. There was, I think Bjork might have been headlining. And, uh, you know, we didn't really know what to we were prepared for. But when we got to the train station, there was all all these cameras and that were there. And they were they're like, well, all these cameras are here. I wonder what they're here for. And we came out of the on the platform and all the cameras are fixed on on us coming out of the train. And they followed us out of the train and you know asked questions and stuff. We got no cab. We went to the hotel. There were people there doing the same. You know, we played a gig at this amazing, huge venue called the Cité, and it was three in the morning, and the place was just packed to the gills and thundering. Uh, you know, uh, they were all there to see morphine somehow wow. for some reason. I, you know, Mark had this way with people and if you've ever seen him you'd know this you've seen this yeah and he certainly had it with and he loved languages too so you know his audiences felt like they were, he was talking right to them and he did it in every country he'd find a way he'd find a way a phrase of something that he could impart and along the way that would make the audiences feel like like he was talking right to them right to their hearts and uh, he did that with the french immediately uh, so at about three in the morning, you know, they we're starting the gig, you know, and we play till three, four, five, I don't know. And the, uh, the manager of the building says, play all night if, if you want. It's the building's <laughs> yours. Wow. And by the time we, this is our first gig in Europe. So by the end of the night, you know, it's it, morning, it's not night. It's the sun's coming up, you know, six o'clock in the morning by the time we're rolling out of there. The next day in the papers, it was, you know, morphine, you know, the next monsters or something. And uh, so that was our first introduction. So we had an amazing year in France that year. And the next following year, we went back, oh, let's go back to France. And they're like, yeah, you know what, guys, uh, we're on to, we're on to something else this year, you know. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. That was a nice date, but we're not, we're not really interested. So we, they didn't, they didn't, the next year it was like, they, it was something else. You guys pretty much did what you wanted to do. And I think that's what a lot of people say about Morphine and respect that about the band. You just did it your way. Um, wh what about other countries? Were there any other countries that you felt the same warmth from that you that you got in France when you first arrived there? Yeah. I mean, honestly, we were very basked in in, in love and appreciation for the, for the music. And everywhere we went, it was it was pretty much the same thing. And you know, in the '90s, we were touring a lot. We we're touring like you know, nine months of the year. You know, uh, from U.S. to all across, from Boston to West Coast to Hawaii to uh, Japan to Australia, New Zealand, then Europe, then back. You know, and it was would just round the round the globe. Places we haven't been. I wish we had been. We never got to 
Brazil as morphine. We got there as vape as a morphine, but not with Mark. He would he loved Brazil. He would have loved to go to go. We got there with orchestra morphine as well. But um, and but he, we got to with morphine. We went to Argentina, which was has been a huge place for us over the years. Um, you know, favorite cities, of course. You know, Belgium was one of our, our favorite countries as well. Belgium, nice. Yeah. They're, um, they're very, very uh, uh, sophisticated culturally, I think. Yeah. A little more about Morphine before we talk about some of these other projects. Um, the Night album, you guys kind of changed just changed a little bit, and you you got you brought a bunch of musicians in there, and Jerome came back, and and unfortunately, you know, Mark passed away before the record came out. But what is your recollection of the making of that record? Because a lot of people talk about that record since it was, it was the last Morphine record. I like the paintings on your back wall. Some nice paintings. <laughs> Those are all mine. Thank you. I like them. Yeah, they're very nice. I like the way they're closely uh, hung close together as well. You right, folks out there, you folks will have to watch on YouTube to see what okay. you know Dane is talking about, which I yeah. will put the video up. But thank you, man. Right. I've got like okay. 250 paintings for the, here. For the listening audience, <laughs> if you can't see it, and I'll I'll describe it. They're, I don't know, I'd say maybe six by ten uh, squares framed and canvas <laughs> with uh long poles of of the palette uh with a palette knife probably maybe acrylic potentially oil acrylic uh, acrylic yeah. with uh allowing the paint to bleed and to form different shapes and surfaces in a very two-dimensional um like color field concept but with strokes will you be my agent sure yeah no problem <laughs> okay so um if you don't want to talk about the night album, we don't have what to. What gave if... you that impression? Now, what gave you that impression? <laughs> what does your hat say? Yeah, it's okay. a Vans hat. Vans hat. Yeah. Yeah, you're fixated on what's going on over here now, and I'm. I, there's I'm a drugstore to... cowboy painting back there. Did I'm, you see that? I'm doing a room rate on you. It's good. Ten. Um, I'm hiding all my gold and platinum records, so you know I'm not going to take those out for yeah, you. We don't want to be. You don't want to brag. No, I don't. Not at all. Um, how about the Mark Sandman Foundation? You had something to do with getting that started. Well, you know what? I will answer the first question because okay, I, I'm just teasing you. It, it, but it was, you know, it was a hard, it was a hard go during the night. Uh, it was very taxing on everybody. Um, we the first major la label, you know, uh, project and we mark was under a lot of pressure to um hit one out of the park you know he did he was working with uh an a and r guy for the first time had to had to meet someone else's expectations for the first time and uh it was it was really hard and he want he was really trying to do something that was you know expanded on the idea and expanded on the band but without losing the, the chemistry of the band and he was had a lot of pressure to kind of, you know, go to L.A. and use, you know, an L.A. session. And which, you know, of course, would have produced, I'm sure, amazing music. Um, but it wouldn't have been Morphine. It uh, would have been Mark, which who knows what that would have produced. But he decided at the end of the day, he wanted to stick with the band. He wanted to stick with the chemistry and 
we went back into high and dry which was mark's fifth yeah uh, floor studio um in cambridge 228 norfolk street and he and we went up there and and after you know an extensive demo sessions with paul Goldery, and sean slade i think everybody just kind of um, hit the wall basically so those sessions were scrapped and we went back and and you know mark kind of said well what i want from the drums is something that you know can be produced by not just what Billy has, but what Jerome has. And I you know, I want something like the two of these guys. And I said, well, there you go, Mark. You know, you invite them to come down. They they love each other. They're not going to, there's, there's no bad blood between them. No, So, you know, they wouldn't have an issue with it. And, uh, and Mark, uh, this is long, this is after a long, excruciating period of Mark being convinced that Billy's drumming was not up to up to snuff and billy suffered enormous humiliation under mark's you know uh quest to find the 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 unknown x factor in the drum chair and unfortunately a lot of that pressure fell on billy but he you know billy wouldn't give up and he kept he kept at it he, he was all about the music and it, whatever it meant if it meant him if, great if it didn't then he was cool with that too he wanted this thing to work so when it came down to Jerome and Billy playing together, it um, it immediately clicked, you know, and there was such a weight lifted that, uh, you know, we'd finally broken the, through the seal because up to that point, um, we weren't going anywhere until Mark was satisfied with the drums and what he needed to hear, you know. And... And you got you listen to drums on the on the on the night, and both Billy and Jerome will tell you they can't tell you who's playing what. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that's cool. Um, I mean, may, I'm sure they have an idea, you know. Of, yeah. Of who's playing the, the kit or what have you, but there are certain sounds that you can that they they're not sure who may who've made who may have made them. Um, you know, I I I'm I'm not trying to make you. I uh, have to. You see why I was distracting you. Yeah, I do. I do. So we're going to move forward. I wanted to talk about the foundation that you guys set up, because I believe you had something to do with that, didn't you? The the uh, Mark Sandman Foundation. Well, most of that credit should go to Andrew Mazzoni. rest is so... Yeah, I know. Um, I met Andrew. Yeah. Um, who is one of the greatest of all kind, of all time. And uh, he was tireless in his... Um, efforts to keep the legacy alive of, of a good friend of all of ours and after mark died uh, he with his abilities andrew i'm speaking uh, was set up a foundation in mark's name um, and then went about trying to produce a uh, program and an organization that would live up to that um and in in way in what made most sense to everyone was that music for children and the children's music education fund. Uh, so I mean, this was around two thousand eight when thing we had been working on it since you know in eight for eight years trying to keep the the studio together and and to work on this fund and try to figure out ways in which to, you know, bring money in and then divert it to the, to the right people and, and give opportunities to the right people. So we, we started working with you know, high school bands, bringing them in, recording them. 
any anybody who seemed to have promise. I know Andrew was affiliated with um, uh, Zoomix. Are you familiar with Zoomix? Heard of it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Another youth music program. He was very involved with them, and we're trying just to kind of make uh, give opportunities to children to to get involved and experiment with music and on any on any level and at any at any point in their development. And you know, so we 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 did what we could locally, essentially, and then um, we in two thousand eight happened, and we had to move out of high and dry, and we went to the uh, into the armory, and had tried to make that work for a couple of years, and it was hard because um, it, in two thousand eight, um, all of the uh, capacity for for acquiring nonprofit uh, donations really just ceased to exist. And we were, that's what we were trying to do. So we, we pretty much were, you know, dead on arrival. <laughs> I kind of went a little out of order here where I wanted to talk about, because I wanted to ask you about Orchestra Morphine, because uh, you guys toured as a nine-piece band. Uh, what was that whole experience like for you? I know you mentioned before you got to go to some countries that Morphine didn't go to. Well, with Orchestra Morphine, the, the idea was we forming because of the night, because of this the orchestration of the night, where you kind of didn't quite fully get through that whole thing. But started with so you have Jerome, you have Billy on the drums, and then you have uh, Mike Rivard on strings. You have Jane Scarpentona Tony, I think, on on uh, violin and cello. Sorry, you have Joey Kessler on violin, and you have. Uh, a bunch of other musicians, John Medeski coming in. Um, so you you know there was a there was piano. There's different guitar parts. Uh, there's an there's an there's an attempt there to kind of um, you know branch out. You asked earlier about why we did we ever think of having a guitar, and and a lot of that was about what we could do in the, on record and, and and fulfilling whatever space might need to be filled and. And I think Mark here on the night really, really went with that concept as best as he could. So, so after, of course, after that record was made, it was like, how are we going to represent this on stage? Because when Mark died um, in 2000, I'm sorry, 1999, um, you know, uh, we had finished the record and he was happy with it. Um, it was mixed. And Billy and I just needed to bring it, bring it home. And so we mix, we mastered and and did the artwork, and set set about the idea of putting together the a live representation for the record. And immediately we thought of our friends who we knew, who some of which were on the record: Russ Gershon, uh, Mike Rivard, Tom Halter, um, Evan Harriman, Larry Sargent, Christian McNeil, um, of course Billy and Jerome. So it was like a nine-piece group, and uh, the idea was to play it wherever we could take it, and then go back to Italy where Mark passed away and play on that same stage as Orchestra Morphine with the music from the night, which we did, and we accomplished that. And so at that point, you know, it was obvious that it was time to maybe kind of move on and, do, and try some other things. And I guess some chemistry formed with Laurie Sargent and you and Billy, and you guys uh, formed the Twine Men. Well, there you, you go. You did three records, and you did a bunch of touring with them also as well. 
Uh, you you actually you know, I, credit, pull- I, I credit Laurie for for really um, pulling me out of a shell because I, at that point I was not sure what to do with music or if I was going to play or, or do what I didn't really feel a huge ambition at that point in my life and we were working with Laurie's record at high and dry and with Billy and I I came in just to hang out just and before you knew it we were jamming on some stuff with Laurie and then before you knew it Laurie was taking the jams we were doing and, and making these other songs that were really different from her solo work and that's when we kind of realized oh I guess we are we're a band <laughs> and uh you know, so Twyman was Mark's cartoon that depicted, you know, three heads entwined in a ball of twine, inseparable in their life, which represented our band life in many ways. Nice. I you, we're talking about high and dry. I got to go there, and um, um, a lot. There's a lot of bands that recorded there. I was there with Caged Heat, was doing their stuff there, and Bourbon Princess. I know was there. And a bunch of other bands, and you worked on on some of these records. In fact, the stuff that you play on on that Cage Heat record is fantastic. The uh, the harmonica and the sax together, man, yeah, it was just Jill. Um, Jill's a p- fire p- powerhouse, man. And, and you know the Bourbon Princess stuff. It kind of led to you guys getting together, uh, aka COD with Larry Dursch. Um, is it true, by the way, that uh, I read this in an article at some point and it just popped into my head. Is it true that Morphine was playing in Philadelphia and, and Monique was at the show and then she saw you guys and decided she was going to move to Boston after she saw Morphine? Is that true? Yeah, Monique was just staying up at my house just this past week, in fact, and uh, was hanging out for a bit. But yeah, that is true. That is the story. And uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, and she immediately, you know, found her way into into a great, you know, scene. And I think I she, I don't know, it's, it was a good place to be. I think for a lot of up up and coming, aspiring musicians or people who who just wanted to, you know, put something together and try something. And but Boston has always been like a great home for musicians. I think because you can come home from a gig or. You can start something new and there's places to play. There's your friends are, you know, very supportive audiences. Uh, you know, that's that's why I live here, you know, because uh, it was always the place I wanted to be when I came home. High and dry. I'm glad, I'm glad that Monique found her way up here because, um, and she's actually, I hope I'm not divulging too much by saying, but she's considering, I think, coming up. Oh, really? Back. Yeah. Nice. I know she's been like in Austin or someplace. Yeah, just outside of Austin. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's, uh, you know, a lot of people respect everything she's done here. AKA COD was a really great band. Uh, you guys, you got, you know, you put one record up, but you did, you did quite a bit of touring too, didn't you? We played, yeah, we did. We got some opportunities. We actually played in Novi Sad, uh, Serbia on uh, for the Exit Festival, which was just a, like a one off thing where they, somehow got a hold of our record and said, do you guys want to play? And we said, well, we're not, we didn't tell them this, but we can tell you this. We weren't, we weren't a band at that point. And I think everybody had gone their separate ways for some time and hadn't played a gig in a while. And of course we said, what do you think? You want to do it? And they said, yeah, let's do it. And I don't, I believe we didn't even get a chance to rehearse 
So we just went went over there, got up on stage in a festival setting, which there is no sound check, having not played for maybe three years, and oh. then began playing the set of music. Yeah, which is pretty phenomenal. It's on YouTube that 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 uh, concert. Yeah, I think I've seen it. Yeah, um, the 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 high and dry thing. I think the, the you guys had a lot of good stuff on high. Andrew Andrew Mazzoni ran the label pretty much, if I'm not mistaken. And um, there were a lot of records that came out, well, CDs that came out on that label. But it was a bad time for music though, because people just stopped buying music during that period there, you know. And it was like getting more and more difficult. Otherwise, I think High and Dry might have actually done a lot better. Unfortunately, I hadn't really thought of that. So, you, what do you what do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, when all the labels shut down, the record stores started shutting down, and people stopped buying things. And of course, I'm going to attribute all to the internet. <laughs> you know, because when all those uh, streaming channels came out, people yeah. just younger people stop buying music but luckily for us now i see vinyl is making a big comeback so it's made a big comeback and we're we're not not going to be where we were but but i yeah. i mean i think some of those records the reason i say this is i and the, the two records i'm thinking of mostly are kht and bourbon princess i think those records would have done a lot better if they mm. had more distribution and they and, and it was like it used to be that's all i meant by that yeah no it's that i hadn't really given it thought about that it's just like if a lot of times you just put out something and you're moving on it's like is it out there you know whatever you know people will find it if they if they find it you know it's it's yeah how does it you know what do you do with it with a record these days i don't know it's a it's kind of a weird thing yeah but we do it anyway that's the what that's even the crazier thing because I think there are still good music out there and you can find it. And that's what will rise to the surface. Absolutely. Um, I know I, I spoke to someone that you worked with, James McAndrew, just yesterday. He told me to say hello to you, by the way, from Milk Toast and Company. I can know you, you go, did. Can you go back in time and say hello to him? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we right. talk to each other a lot. He's out in Colorado now. And oh, he, well, when he hears this, I'll say, hey, Andrew, James, <laughs> what's up, man? I used the Milk Toast song as a as a theme song for my show, so <laughs> chances are he's good, and he's a big fan of yours. So you no, know. he's great. I love his LA yeah. stuff. I love the, the band. They're really, uh, really, really uh, interesting and inventive. Um, forgive me if I've missed anything here because you've done a lot. Because I wanted to talk about vapors of morphine um, a bit, because um, I know you're active because you have a gig tonight. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Which will have happened by the time this show comes out. But um, how did it come come about with Jer Jeremy Lyons? How did you meet Jeremy? We see, I hear he might have been a Morphine fan and he moved up here. Is that how the whole thing happened? Or, Well, it's a weird thing, actually. It's a very strange story. Jeremy and I had met in New Orleans without knowing we had met when Morphine was traveling through there. I had I had. had day off and I was just kind of walking around uh, Jackson Square and I noticed the band busking so I sat down and hung out and listened for a while and I snapped a Polaroid I snapped two Polaroids I put one in the case of the of the guitarist and I put one in my journal which I keep I've kept throughout the whole thing and uh, wrote about the music and, and that was it that was in I don't know the 90s and so 
2005 uh, Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans and Jeremy's living there and has to move, has to move basically out of his house and comes to Cambridge. A friend of his is looking, you know, reaching out saying, Jeremy's, uh, I have a friend from New Orleans is looking for a place to kind of just connect with musicians, do some playing or something. And at the time we were still in, uh, we were still at High and Try. So I said, well, yeah, of course, invite him up. I'd love to, love to meet him. And so he came up to the studio brought his guitar and banjo and said, why don't we just do some recording if you're feeling it, you know, we just run through some songs and he played like 30 songs in a row. Um, just in my jaw was just drops. Holy mackerel. You know, switching from guitar into to banjo and just completely com in command of, of the entire thing. And I said, man, you're something. Um, so we immediately became friends and, it was like the fifth anniversary of, of Mark's passing in, Palest in Palestrina and the festival was inviting us to come back. And I suggested to Jeremy, why don't we go back as a trio? If you felt like learning some morphine songs on guitar or something, we could just go back and do it that way. And he said, yeah, definitely. And before I know it, he had had his good friend, um, washed up Robbie, um, build him a two string. And uh, he came back and said, well, Washed up, Robbie built me a two string, and I've learned some songs on two string. So we, we could do it that way too. And uh, he, sang, he immediately sounded great. I hadn't heard that sound since Mark had played it, basically. So, and he had, Jeremy is an amazing, uh, you know, what's um, the word for a music historian? Um, is there a word for a music historian? I don't know. We there can is. go with that. All right. Well, he know I mean, his knowledge of music goes goes just so deep, and so he knew all about this. You know, the slide and its origins and on the porches of the Delta. You know, and he so he brings all of that into into it, and also he he knows he can hear Mark's nuances, and he he he's copped that as well. So the sound of his two string is really well informed. You know, um, and so. And that's where it started. We went back, we did this festival with Jerome, in fact. Um, and then uh, we started, a, you know, started going in that track for a while. And we've been doing it ever since. We, initially, we, we were called members of Morphine. <clears throat> we switched our name to the ever-expanding Elastic Waistband because why not? <laughs> Even though my band hated it. And I was the only one who thought it was funny. <laughs> We'll never go anywhere with a name like that. And uh, they, they were right. Uh, I was wrong. But, hey, you know, what are you going to do? And you've and been somebody, doing... Huh? Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to say, and you guys have been playing for ever since. I mean, I'm sure the pandemic slowed you down and you didn't get to do anything for a while to, to, with everyone. But now you're back at it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're pretty back at it. With, uh, with we, went to, we had a tour, we went to Russia, we went to... Twice we went to Europe with with vapors, and at our last European tour, Jerome pretty much said, "You know, guys, that was fun, but I think I'm gonna I'm gonna sit this next one out." And we ended up uh, bringing in Tom Airy, who's a, this uh, who's a, one of the most sought after drummers in Boston, and he came in with uh, having completely absorbed, you know, the morphine drumming music, Jerome. Billy, he's got it 
down. He just came in with it. And so we've, uh, we've, we try to retain him as, as for as much as we can. He's not easy to retain. He's very busy. So we have to gig at least long enough to keep him interested so he doesn't go away. Are you doing one-offs right now mostly, or do you have any touring planned? Well, we're looking at touring if possible. We're talking, I know now I mentioned I will jinx it, but we have been in conversation with a, a promoter who works in the Balkans and some idea of going there in the fall potentially. But uh, it's been a while. We had a promoter in Argentina for a while, but we had to fire him. So now that's 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 gone. We had a promoter in Russia, and something's going on there. So I don't know. We can't go back. So. Do you? Before I let you go, do you spend a lot of time now listening to new music, or do you just have a catalog of old stuff that you listen to? Or I love new music and everybody, you can hate me and I, I hate myself, but uh, Spotify has been, is amazing to someone who's, you know, has a quest for new music. It's just like someone says something, you can put put it in and there it is, you know. Um, I use it all the time. Uh, I pay, I'd pay more for it if it meant, you know, I could pay myself more in the other end. But uh, at any rate, new, yeah, I mean, to me, that's, you know, there's, there's just so much out there and um i try to you know the, the algorithms they, they steer you in a way that yeah like you can hate it but you know boy i love when i hear something i've never heard before and it tips me in this whole other direction that i can then research and find and and, and get into i've been really getting into uh screaming trees which i somehow missed in the 90s i just finished lanigan's book his memoir and it, it's gone back to listen to some of that stuff and and going through all of Lanigan's solo records and and that's 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 kind of where my head's at at the moment. Do you uh, sit? Yeah, I know in the past you've sat in with a lot of different people. Do you ever do that anymore? Or, or I know the pandemic just happened, but do you, do you ever play out with other people anymore? Well, I just I just got back from one of the most life affirming experiences i've had in my life i think i was just out at joshua tree recording at uh rancho de la luna with dave catching for their oh. 30th uh their 30th anniversary of rancho de la luna and uh got to play with some amazing people out there and on some amazing tracks and met some amazing folks um so that that's i'm still kind of buzzing from that it's uh it was, it was, you know, I, my routine here in Boston is pretty, you know, pretty some, you know, very much the same, you know, like everybody, you know, you, you know, so it's uh, to get out in the desert and to kind of get a taste of someone else's lifestyle and, and to, and to have that lifestyle be like about making music and their whole life is about making music. It's very, it was very affirming in, in a huge way. Cool, man. That sounds nice. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I'm still like pinching myself, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us. And, oh, man, uh, thanks. Yeah, good luck with the editing, you know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't do much editing, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm just like, let it roll. That's I, what I'm, I'm afraid not gonna of. Yeah. I'm not going to take out the part where you said I had nice paintings. Why would I take that no, out? No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> jiving, jiving you but uh good luck with vapors man and it was great talking to you and uh, pleasure man thank you for, one of these days thanks for it yeah i look forward to that all, all right man thank Cheers. you bye 
beautiful cat Sheila has a cat She pets the cat It's a beautiful cat song was Sheila from Vapors of Morphine, which was written by Mark Sandman and originally on the Cure of Pain album by Morphine. There were a lot of songs to pick from, so I t- picking the two that I picked was not easy. Dana Cauley, wow, really nice guy and an outstanding musician, and it was a pleasure having him on the show. Uh, If you are really enjoying hearing this show, we have a Patreon page and you could support us. There's a lot of exclusive, there is some exclusive content now, plan on making a lot of content. So if you want to show your support for the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Twisted Rico, help us out. You can reach me anytime at my email address at twistedrico.gmail.com. We're also available on all the social media platforms and I urge you to check out our YouTube YouTube page where you can actually watch the Zoom interview 
through that Dana and I did and watch him try and dodge a question about the Night album. And he started talking about the art of my wall in the background. If you heard that and you listened to it, you got to go check out the video because I was pretty psyched, actually, that he noticed the art on the wall since it was all my art. And he uh, eventually did start talking about the Night album. And you'll find out why he tried to dodge that question, or you just did find out in the interview. So uh, I'm not going to hold that against him. I was actually thankful that he mentioned the art on my wall and gave me a plug for the, for the somewhat artist that I am. <laughs> somewhat of an artist. All right, let me also remind you that you can go to studio-float.com and use the code BLOWINGSMOKE10 in the online form for a 10% off on your order. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next time we say goodbye, this is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive. Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico is brought to you by Light Street Media. For no more